But I believe we would be wise to reject such cowardly behavior and rather follow the example of Jesus, who spoke boldly on the topic of hell, in fact, more frequently than he talked about heaven, and more forcefully than he did on many other important topics. And uh, there were those in our cynical age who would accuse Jesus of some kind of barbaric lust for intimidation. Uh, But we would contend that Jesus in the Gospels is simply offering a loving warning uh, for people that judgment of God is coming. And so just as a doctor must be faithful to offer a a sound prognosis to a patient who's facing a life-threatening illness uh, before the doctor would offer that patient the only cure for the disease. So, we as Christians must be faithful like our Lord to inform people of how they might flee from the coming wrath. So, I will read uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 10 as we prepare to hear this message together. Here, follow along as I read. Paul writes, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who, are, who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. This is the word of of the living God. I'm going to pray for this message. And uh, I also want to offer a brief pastoral prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ suffering in India. Some of you may be aware of the great persecution in Orissa, in northern India. And having been made more aware of the situation recently, I'd like to offer a pastoral prayer for the relief and protection of our, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me lead us in prayer together. Dear gracious God, you have made clear in your word that you are holy and just. And a day of judgment is coming. And we bristle at the thought of meeting your holy wrath were it not for the protective refuge that we have in Jesus Christ, covered by his own righteous blood. We thank you that you have spared us that coming judgment, and that we have the hope of eternal life for all those who have trusted in Christ. And in this hour, Lord, we would also pray for brothers and sisters suffering halfway around the globe, those in the northern districts of India who are suffering grave persecution at the hand of terrorists and those who are determined to snuff out Christians and those of lower Indian caste ethnicities. We pray, O Lord, that you would be their shield and defender that you would protect them and enable pastors and church leaders to be bold and courageous. We pray that relief organizations could get through uh, the fences to provide relief, clothing, and food. We pray for the state to step in and do what is just and right to protect the innocent. Lord, we know that you are righteous and that you defend the innocent and that you will exalt 
your people and vindicate those who have trusted in Christ. And so, O Lord, we entrust these matters into your hand, even as we pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, what follows here is the opening illustration uh, from the book, Hell on Trial, uh, which is authored by Dr. Robert Peterson, one of our Reform Conference speakers from last year and one of my professors at Covenant Seminary. He writes this. Imagine yourself a pilot of Korean Airlines Flight 007, departing from Anchorage, Alaska, destination Seoul, Korea. The year is the date is September 1st, 1983. And so you take off on the runway. You've got your crew and 269 passengers. But as you take off, you are completely unaware of a major instrument malfunction in the cockpit. Unknowingly, you as a pilot lead this plane astray, drifting further, further into hostile territory, the airspace of Soviet Russia. Well, a threatened military officer in Russia orders his men to shoot down your plane with a Soviet Su-15 interceptor missile. You, your crew, and all 269 passengers are killed instantly, tragically, and unnecessarily. We live in a day where pastors are leading their flocks astray by a similar faulty instrumentation. Rather than trusting in the inerrant word of God, such under-shepherds would trust in their devised schemes of their own minds regarding the afterlife and life beyond the grave. There are some who would calculate that life after death is highly unlikely. Other wishful thinkers presume that merely everyone will go to heaven. And then there are others who, out of sympathy, insist that unbelievers must be given a second chance after death to respond to the offer of salvation in the gospel. But then there are also those who cannot stomach the thought of eternal punishment and so work the scriptures over to see if God might annihilate the soul of unbelievers after Judgment Day. Well, whatever end of the spectrum these teachings come from, it's clear that such teachers and those who follow their doctrines are resting in a false assurance. And unbeknownst to them, they are drifting far from the truth of God's word, leaving many vulnerable to a fate that is worse than death. In our flesh, we are tempted to duck the hard questions and to tell people simply what they want to hear. But God would have us be faithful to rest contented in his verdict on human eternal destinies, both for his glory and for everyone's ultimate good. I want to begin tonight offering a short review of Tim Keller's four main arguments in response to the challenges of skeptics to the doctrine of eternal punishment. The first protest that Dr. Keller wrestles with is the contention that a God of judgment cannot exist. Such persons can't believe in a God who would require blood sacrifice 
to pacify his holy wrath. And so they rendered this idea of divine judgment day completely impossible, if not ridiculous. Well, Keller, in his brilliance, kind of turns the table on the skeptic and, and asks this question. Well, why are you not offended at a God who forgives? You see, Americans are often offended at the biblical concept of hell, but gladly embrace Jesus' other teachings, like turn the other cheek, love your enemies, and so forth. The interesting fact is, if you interviewed uh, people around the world in other cultures, perhaps in the Middle East or other parts of the world, you would find quite the opposite reaction. Many people around the world would have no problem with the concept of hell, but would be greatly offended, if not completely perplexed, at Jesus' command to forgive and love one's enemies. In fact, that was probably the case in Jesus' own day in the first century. His initial hearers would have been more troubled by his teachings on forgiveness than they would on his teachings about hell. And so, Tim Keller makes the argument that if Christianity is truly transcultural, if it's truly from God and not from man, then we would expect it to contradict, in some way, all human cultures. Because human cultures are imperfect and changing. If Christianity is really true, it would undoubtedly offend and correct certain parts of our thinking. And so... We must not be surprised when people are offended at the gospel. Such offense is often necessary in order for people to eventually embrace the truth. Number two, a second objection is uh, that a God of judgment can't also be a God of love. But our response to this is the common recognition that we all know plenty of loving people who at times can be filled with great wrath. There there is no necessary contradiction here. True love, when provoked uh, to anger, uh, true love is provoked to great anger when it witnesses grave injustice. In fact, God's wrath flows out of his love and delight in his good creation. God is angry at evil and injustice because it destroys peace and integrity. Furthermore, if God were not angry at injustice, he would not be worthy of our worship. In fact, in contrast to this concept that a God of judgment cannot also be a God of love, it's rather the opposite, that a lack of belief in a God of vengeance nourishes violence. In fact, after a long list of evil deeds, the psalm writer in Psalm 9 quotes the wicked, saying, God has forgotten. He covers his face. He never sees. And as has been illustrated in this past century by the Nazis and the communists, that when cultures lose their belief in a God of judgment, there's a great tendency to lead to brutality and harsh injustice. And so the best recourse against the wickedness of man is a firm belief in God's divine justice. 
the doctrine of eternal punishment undergirds the biblical teaching of love and peacemaking. A third rebuttal that the skeptic might offer is that a loving God would not allow hell. There are some who think that God is capricious in sending people to hell. However, these folks misunderstand the very nature of evil. The biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, who is the source of all joy, wisdom, and love. And so, to lose the presence of God is hell. It's our loss of capacity to give or to receive love. Hell is the trajectory of the soul, living self-absorbed in a self-centered life forever and ever. In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus offers a stark contrast between two individuals who end up with their statuses radically reversed. And what's most interesting about this parable is the behavior of the rich man. You'll notice that uh, the first request he asks of Father Abraham is that Lazarus come and cool his tongue in the fire with uh, a drop of cold water. You see, the rich man still sees Lazarus as his servant. In his follow-up request that Lazarus be sent to go preach the gospel to his brother still living on earth, implies in the rich man's mind that God is somehow at fault for not having given him enough information about the afterlife to turn and repent of his sin. In fact, the rich man demonstrates an abominable amount of denial, of blame-shifting and spiritual Blindness. You'll notice, if you read the parable, that he never once asked to be rescued or delivered from hell. You'll also notice that the man is not given a name. And perhaps this is because he is so absorbed with himself, with his wealth and his riches, that he has completely lost his identity as a true self. Tim Keller writes that hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God. And we can see a similar process as we observe people who get trapped in various kinds of addictions, whether it's alcohol or drugs or gambling or pornography. The first step in the process we might call disintegration, where the addict becomes uh, more and more dependent upon the substance And it requires greater and greater amounts of that addictive substance to get the same kick, the same result. The second step in that process for the addict is called isolation, where the victim begins to blame others, to blame his circumstances in order to justify his behavior. And as we all know, the addict begins to lose all sense of humility And becomes completely out of touch with reality. And as we observe such grotesque behaviors, we would conclude biblically that no one asked to leave hell. For the very idea of heaven to them is a sham. 
Now, this very point is illustrated well by C.S. Lewis in his uh, fictional story, The Great Divorce. It's a story, uh, complete fictional, where a bus carries people from hell to the outskirts of heaven. And there the saints try to uh, convince the people from hell to repent, to come and to embrace glory. And yet the people repeatedly reject the offer. They're so self-absorbed, so pitiful that they fail to embrace the opportunity for redemption. Keller has this to say about them. The people in hell are miserable. We see them raging like unchecked flames in their pride, their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong, that everyone else is an idiot. All their humility is gone, and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally blocked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. We would contend that people are not crying to be let out of hell. They would rather have their freedom than salvation. Hell is, as Lewis describes, the greatest monument to human freedom. Romans 1.24 declares that God gave them up to their desires. All God does in the end is give people what they want, freedom from himself. Lewis also writes elsewhere, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, Thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Why, fourth and final challenge that the skeptic offers to the doctrine of hell is their contention or their insistence that God is only and merely a God of love. Well, where do we get this concept that God is love? Well, we know it comes from the Bible. Did you also know it only comes from the Bible? 1 John 4, to be exact. Do your research. You will not find another religion. You will not find another religious text, ancient or modern, that teaches the biblical doctrine of God's love. The Bible alone teaches that God created the world out of love and delight. Almost every ancient pagan religion story of creation is one that came about by a violent struggle between opposing supernatural powers. And even today as we look upon the the broad scope of religious pluralism, the Buddhists have no firm belief in a personal God, let alone a God of love. Even Muslims are offended at this idea of knowing God personally. In fact, a majority of Muslims worldwide do not think of God as love. Nor do they even seek to love God. He's only to be feared and obeyed. And so we might counter to the skeptic and ask them, well, why is it that you only believe in a God of love? This is not a prevailing attribute in all of the world's religions, only in Christianity. 
we get the idea that God is love from the Bible, where it says that God is love and just. Well, in addition to these four arguments from Keller's book, I have three of my own that I wanted to add to the mix. My first is this, that our own longing for justice confirms the universal desire to see every wrong righted in the end. You see, the problem is that dismissing eternal punishment renders evils committed in this life meaningless. It does not square with our internal sense that people are culpable and will be held accountable ultimately to wrongdoing. And all the modern attempts to explain away people's ill behavior with naturalistic explanations, we all inherently find deeply dissatisfying. Try to explain to parents that the serial killer that violated their daughter is merely a product of his genes or of a bad environment. Hell is a very practical provision of a just God to deal ultimately with wickedness and all sins which are never reconciled with Jesus on the cross. Secondly, people who reject hell have too low a view of God who is perfectly holy and just. God, our creator, who made each of us for his own glory, is perfectly justified to condemn a rebellious humanity to eternal punishment. All appeals to a loving God without judgment is a religious leap of faith. And as just as hard, at least as hard to justify as the God of wrath that we find in the Bible. Thirdly, it is our wholly inadequate view of the sin nature that leads us to waver on the biblical doctrine of eternal punishment. We have a tendency to condemn the really bad people and excuse the lesser sins of ourselves and the people we care about. And it's in our shallow view of sin that we fail to see the gross injustice that our sin is against an infinite God. And though our sins may be minor and small in our own eyes, our sin has infinite offense against God Almighty, who is holy, perfect, and just. In our frailty that we sympathize with the condemned, we fail to see that people who are lost in their sins really want nothing to do with the living and true God. And as we've already argued, their choice is their very freedom from God. Such, sadly, is the deceitfulness of sin from which people need radical redemption and deliverance through Christ. Well, lastly tonight, I'd like to turn finally to our passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and establish three brief points. That ultimately, God's judgment is just. That God's judgment is eternal. And God's judgment is glorious. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1 establish that God's purpose on the judgment day is both to vindicate the righteous and to pay back the wicked. 
in this context, Paul has been writing this letter, commending the Thessalonians for their persevering faith and reminds them of the reward that they can expect. They have been counted worthy of the kingdom of God because of their suffering and enduring great suffering and persecution. And it's this, this very kingdom, this eternal kingdom with Christ, is for all of those who trust in him and remain faithful to him until the very end. And so God will vindicate the righteous. And yet God in his zeal will also pay back troublemakers, those who persecute the church, as the radical uh, sects of, Hin- of Hinduism that I referred to earlier in India, that the believers there can be comforted in God as their just defender, and that he will make all things right on that final judgment day. But we all know that not all unbelievers are actively persecuting believers. But nevertheless, verse 8 establishes the conditions for salvation. And that eternal punishment is for those who do not believe in Christ. It is reserved for those who have rejected the gospel, who neither know God personally nor obey the gospel of Christ. And due to their refusal to repent, to respond to God's grace, they will suffer their just deserts. And it's in fact their rejection of God's grace, the free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, who is a substitute, who is offered to pay our penalty. And the only alternative, if you reject that free offer of salvation, if you refuse to let Jesus pay your infinite penalty, then the only recourse is for you to pay it yourself. There are only two ways for sins to be paid for, either on the cross of Christ or in hell for all eternity. And God offers all people that choice. Either take my grace and embrace the freedom and the deliverance of the gospel or insist in your pride to pay it your way to have it your way, and to suffer eternally and tragically. Well, as to this next point, that judgment indeed is eternal, we turn to in verses 7 and 9. It's at this point that Paul points to the very vindication of the righteous on the day that Christ will return. And not only will Christ come to redeem the elect, he also will begin the eternal punishment of the wicked. It says in verse 9, that the wicked will be punished with an everlasting destruction. They'll be shut out from the presence of God and the majesty of his power. It's very clear from the text and the context that this is not temporary. This is permanent and unending. And in contrast to those who would say that God eventually annihilates the souls of the wicked, this text is fitting with all the other judgment texts which clearly show a very conscious and painful suffering of unbelievers for all eternity, where there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worms shall not die, an ongoing eternal fire, darkness and isolation. And it's this very fact that the unbelievers will be condemned 
and shut out of the gracious and loving presence of God and merely suffer his wrath and justice. This contradicts the idea of of annihilationism because this presupposes their very existence. They must continue to exist to receive the punishment that their sin deserves. Well, finally, we see also in verse 10 that God's judgment is glorious. On that great and awesome day, Christ will be glorified in his people, and his glory will be made manifest in his grace to the elect and his justice to the condemned. And consequently, all people will worship him with great joy and awe. Now, there are some Christians who ask the question, Will the redeemed mourn the eternal plight of the condemned? Well, Scripture seems to indicate by the joy and the happiness that is ascribed to the eternal kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth that those of us who are redeemed in glory will so be filled with the glory of God's grace and His justice that there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more mourning because we will see God for who he is and glory in his graciousness and his awesome justice. In that same fictional story, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, he describes a reunion between a redeemed saint named Sarah Smith and her husband who who has come up from hell to meet her on the outskirts of heaven. And it's very clear from their interaction that this man was a very controlling and manipulative husband. It was very clear that Sarah had been bound and tormented by him until the day of her death. And yet in glory, it is all different. She is now free. She has been set free from his captivity. Nevertheless, her former husband continues to get her, try to get her to pity him, pity him in his misery of his situation in hell, and yet she will have none of it and continue to plead with him, not being controlled by him, but pointing him to Christ to come and to be saved. And in a brilliant observation by both the book, the story's narrator, and another character, they offer this conclusion That willful dissenters, those who reject the gospel and those who reject our faith, cannot hold our joy for ransom. They cannot rob us of the joy God intends for his redeemed. Our joy in redemption will marginalize all of our sorrow to the point of non-existence. And so we will one day be delivered from all of our man-centered self-pity. And we will see God in all of his glory and be eternally satisfied in him. Now for those parents, perhaps whose children have rejected the message of the gospel, who face the prospect of eternal punishment, you need to be reminded that Your joy cannot be held captive by the decisions of others. You can find consolation in the God who will glorify himself 
and vindicate the righteous. And for all of us, many of us, I assume, who have family and loved ones who are outside the fold of God, may we be moved with great pity to plead on our knees before God and face-to-face with each and every person we care about that they might turn from sin and place personal faith in Jesus Christ to embrace Him as their Lord and Savior. May the reality of hell move us with urgent compassion to share with those who are perishing the way of life and deliverance from the judgment to come. And lastly, may the doctrine of eternal punishment inspire us to worship Almighty God, who is holy and just, whose wrath awaits those who have rejected Him, but whose grace and mercy abounds to those who have found their rest in Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior. In closing, I would just say this. We ought never, ever wish hell on anybody. Not even the radical Hindu murderers in Orissa, India. We we pray for their salvation. That God would deliver them from their insanity of sin and terror. And might we sympathize with many in our own culture, many secularists, who resist the teaching of biblical hell, who even scorn and mock it. May we sympathize with them, but may we not shrink back from defending it out of obedience to Christ and of genuine compassion for those who reject this teaching to their eternal harm. In this age of confusion, may we be clear and candid about the spiritual reality that awaits all of us at that moment when we enter eternity. And in these times of distress, might we be bold and courageous to declare the mysteries of God, to shed the light of the gospel upon the paths of those who are wandering about in darkness. Might we approach people to give them the bad news, that we might also declare to them the good news of hope eternal, of life everlasting, the forgiveness of sins, grace and peace through faith in Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior. Amen. Dear gracious God, you who have redeemed us, you who have saved us for yourself, We thank you for making it very clear, the warning of Scripture about the coming wrath. May we be moved and motivated to check our own hearts, to make sure that we are found in the faith, that we are not deceived. And might we find in our assurance a great joy, a great expectation in that day when we will see Christ exalted. And might you move us with earnest compassion for those who do not yet believe, especially in our own households, amongst our extended family members, our co-workers and neighbors. May we be moved to plead with you and with them that their hearts might be turned and delivered from the wrath to come. 
Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. In your precious name, amen.